0: everybody, this is Dr. Deanna Minnick. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast, where we explore how you can get some more color, creativity, and healing in your everyday life. We get to look at the spectrum of eating, living, feeling, and creating that you're all about. So let's dive into the inspiration and information rainbow that awaits us. This is Dr. Deanna. Welcome to another episode of Color Can Heal Your Life. And this episode is going to be pretty science-y. So for those of you who love science and you want to know more about nutrigenomics and epigenetics, this episode is for you. I'm interviewing Lucia Aronica. And uh, Dr. Aronica is a Ph.D., and she has really focused on these particular areas of nutrigenomics and epigenetics, and she has a, a very personal and professional interest in personalized nutrition, all of those P's just right there in a row. So you're going to get a, um, a wonderful high-level view of the study and research that she's working on, her view on low-fat, low-carbohydrate ways of eating. I even asked her about coconut oil. Uh, And so you're going to, um, of course, get a a round-robin of many different topics your way from uh, her perspective. And um, again, having a research scientist at Stanford to give us Their take on these hot topics is so incredibly valuable, and she brings so much value and passion to the table when it comes to this field. So here we go. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast. I'm here today with a very special guest, Dr. Lucia Aronica. So welcome, Dr. Aronica. Thank you very
1: much, Diana, for having me. Oh, it's it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Oh, agree. It's a pleasure on my end too. You know, I've heard so much about you from a good colleague and friend of mine, and she said, "Deanna, you need to talk with this woman." And when she said that, I thought, and I looked at your bio, which is so impressive. I thought I need to have a podcast conversation with her and really pick her brain on so many different topics. So one of the topics that we are going to talk about is uh, what you're truly expert in, nutrigenomics, and and before we dive in, because you know you and I, scientist to scientist, it'll be nice to kind of get into some of the detail. But before we get in, I want to ask you a very basic, non-scientific question, and that is, what is your favorite color? I'm kind of curious.
1: <laughs> it's orange. Orange. Really?
0: Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Orange. I don't think I've ever had somebody who said orange.
1: I, I don't know why. I think in general, I like warm colors. I like the sun, so yellow, but I'm uh, also, um, I, I was born in Naples, Italy, the, the city of, um, uh, there is a, 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 a volcan there, uh, the Vesuvio so it's uh, um, active and I, I like to think that I'm red like the leadic um, uh, volcanic material oh. and uh, yellow like the sun and the mix is orange.
0: Beautiful. I'm envisioning it now. I mean, it, it conjures up like a sunset <laughs> or a sunrise. You know, that's such a, a healing, a very warm, soothing color. So great choice, <laughs> and usually I, I assign the colors to different meanings. And with orange, I think about creative flow. It's it warms us up so that we can create. And when I look at your background, you have been very creative, actually. You know, you've um, you're from Europe, but you you've studied in a variety of different places. You've also been at Stanford. You like teaching. You like diversity in what you do. Maybe tell us a bit about your background. How did you even get into nutrigenomics?
1: Yes, it's a beautiful story. I will try to keep it short. So I was born in Naples and then uh, um, completed my PhD in Vienna in Austria, a very beautiful uh, um, city. Um, uh, My PhD was in uh, uh, epigenetics. Um, and uh, I was working at, the ta- at that time on simple model systems, so like uh, yeast cells, um, those you use to make bread, and uh, uh, ciliates, so single cell organisms that swim in uh, fresh water. Um, so that was all very exciting and interesting because epigenetics uh, was just booming. But I wanted to work on human cells, and I wanted to work on nutrition because, uh, in my free time, uh, I uh, so when I was not working at the bench during my PhD, I loved to just go to the gym and experiment with diets and in particular moving from uh, um, Italy uh, where uh, I had uh, eaten all my life pasta and bread and uh, a very high carbohydrate diet to Austria. uh, I started to eat in Austria a a low carbohydrate diet just for fun. I was experimenting because pasta was not very good there and I had to cook. I started to eat more fat and less carb- processed carbohydrates. So, um, and this was an experiment that I was doing in my own kitchen and uh, it, um, it didn't have anything to do with my research activities, right? So, uh, but I, I switched diet, and then I went to the doctor and compared my blood lipids before the diet and after the diet. And something surprising uh, was was on the paper, so uh, I, I I saw that on a low carbohydrate diet actually your triglycerides typically go down, and uh, your HDL goes up, in general cholesterol and the good cholesterol also. And this was for me counterintuitive um, because I was thinking, you know, uh, how is this possible? I'm eating more fat. And then my triglycerides, which are fat, are going down. This is completely why this is, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, the, why is this happening. And then, you know, I start reading. It's not so surprising at all because actually when we, we are what we eat, but we are actually what we metabolize and absorb. So when we eat carbohydrates, we actually synthesize fat. Uh, from carbohydrates to a process called um, known as de novo lipogenesis. So we make new fats from something that was not fat before carbohydrates. So anyway, long story short, I, I became um, <laughs> a passionate low carb and um, and then uh, something happened to my mother. My mother uh, had a brain stroke. Um, 2014 uh, uh, and uh, she had uh dyslipidemia so she had very high triglycerides and high cholesterol and uh, so the doctor um, suggested there to go to a very low carbohydrate diet and take uh, cholesterol lowering low drugs um, uh, taking drugs and um, as a consequence of my experience, I I told my mother not to do so, and because it's not true that you're going to lower your triglycerides by by going low carbohydrate, um, so a low fat. So I actually uh, she she went on a low carbohydrate diet, and uh, her blood was completely transformed by this experience. She didn't take any medication, and then she went back to the doctor, and the doctor asked her so. What did you do? And she replied, "Yeah, well, the opposite of what you told me to do—not, <laughs> not low fat. Uh, I, I actually ate more fat and less <laughs> carb, and I didn't take medication. And so um, this was my private story." So to go on to answer your question, then I really wanted to bring together these two pieces, my passion for nutrition, and, uh, um, uh, and ma- especially macronutrient composition of, of the diets and epigenetics. So I, I just, um, uh, I knew that at Stanford there was, um, so in 2007, a study was published, the a to z study, a stands for Atkins and Z for Zone. So they tested uh, all, um, so four diets: Atkins, Zone, uh, Le- Learn, and Ornish, covering the entire spectrum from very low carb to very low fat diet: low carb Atkins, low fat Ornish. And uh, they showed in uh, more than 300 women what I experienced in, uh, in my diet and what my mother experienced. So basically that going low carb, actually you lower your triglycerides more and you, are, you have overall a better um, uh, improvement in terms of lipids. So I thought, okay, I want to take I want to contribute to the follow-up of this study. And in 2015, the follow-up of this study just was starting with 600 people, men and women. And this is the Diet Fit Study, uh, which stands for Diet Intervention Examining the Factors, Interacting with treatment success. In a nutshell, this study wants to um, uh, wants to uh, identify the factors, the molecular factors that can predispose people to respond better to either a low carbohydrate or a low fat diet. So this is personalized nutrition, and one of these factors is epigenetics. So I'm leading. The epigenetic analysis of the diet fit studies. There are several other analyses going on to personalize these as diet assignments. So epigenetic is one of them, then there is the genetic analysis, the microbiome analysis, the metabolome analysis, and by integrating all these an- omics, omics analysis, so omics stands for Um, a word that is very often used in biology to uh, describe the entire set of the data in a given field. So the entire set of epigenetic modification, genetic modification, or uh, microbes in your gut. So by integrating these, these big data, we aim to personalize diet assignment for personalized weight loss uh and i'm so happy to be part to 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 have to receive the opportunity to contribute to the study and uh, yes it's just uh you know all my passion and my my uh, expertise joined together for yes it, it's just an incredible so opportunity. Win-win.
0: yeah and um yeah. so if i understand it correctly so as part of this research project you're looking into low-fat and low-carbohydrate ways of eating, different dietary patterns, and then matching those up to the universe of omics, so whether it's, yeah, and and so I'm kind of curious, so applying these dietary patterns, is there any work that's done ahead of time so that you can look at people's SNPs in order to look at how they metabolize fat, because I, I kind of hear that low-carb and high-fat eating, i.e. more along the lines of a ketogenic diet, can have very mixed results in people, which does speak to the personalized approach, whether they're doing the ketogenic diet in a certain way and maybe not bringing in, a, in enough vegetables, or, you know, there are they're unhealthy and healthy versions, of course. But I'm kind of curious, are, are you doing any kind of genotyping Ahead of time, before they're actually in the study, just to see if that plays into how you're randomizing to the dietary patterns, or is it just everybody's in one big bucket?
1: Yes. So, first of all, you're you are absolutely right. Um, uh, um, so the the aim of the study is exactly so there is. A variability of response to low-carb, low-fat, and that's why we are we are making these studies because although you know on average both diets are successful, but within each diet there are people that are, the, are the so-called high responders who lose a lot of weight, and the low responders who don't lose weight, and we are trying to understand why. Mm-hmm. Now. One of the factors is genetics, so um, we did look um, uh, at several SNPs. Um, we first went, uh, tried um, a candidate gene approach. So um, we uh, tried uh, to, um, uh, to check three SNPs that were previously associated to response to low carb and low fat, um, but we could not confirm uh, those findings. And now we are trying to look at the entire panel of SNPs that we genotyped and try to make another genetic score. But based on my experience, and uh, probably you can also tell me something about it, uh, the problem with these uh, common SNPs is that they can predict uh, usually less than 1% or the variability in people uh, uh, traits, and so also response to diet. There, are, there have been many studies associating this SNP with this and that, but the problem is that, um, yes, the um, effect size is very small. So even adding a bunch, identifying a bunch of NIPs that, um that is associated with a trait of, as usually a very small predictive power. I usually always uh, tell people, imagine for example, as an example, height. Height is a highly genetic trait, mm-hmm. but there are more than 100,000 SNPs behind it. So if I know 10 of these, these SNPs, uh, it doesn't really help me to know if uh, <laughs> to predict the height of my children. So the same is unfortunately, I think, with diet. That's why we aim to integrate uh, different omics markers uh, with the, uh, yeah to enhance to increase the um, predictive power of, of singular markers so the genetic is one part um, there is a lot of uh, of uh, hope in the epigenetic markers and this is the reason why uh, recent study uh, show that actually Uh, uh, epigenetic uh, variation is more strongly associated with uh, uh, body weight than uh, genetic variation. And if you think about it, there is a a good reason for that because unlike genes, epigenetic markers can be influenced by um, uh, environmental factors or lifestyle factors such as gaining weight. So these are the epigenetic markers are those that more likely reflect um, uh, uh, a condition like obesity or increased body weight is very often acquired during the lifetime. So um, there are many epigenetic markers that have been associated with increased body weight and uh, they are reversed. So they are are dynamic, so they are reversed to the lean type epigenetic marks once people lose weight. So what I'm saying is that uh, because epigenetic markers can store a memory of uh, our eating history, uh, these are actually more likely to store uh, information uh, about your uh, uh, response to food and diet. So what what I think that happens, why people um, respond better to a low carbohydrate or low-fat diet is that, okay, there are some universal rules of metabolism and biochemistry, and uh, uh, this is true for everyone. But at the same time, for example, if you, uh, if you, um, for, for some reason, have uh, been long time on a high carbohydrate diet, you might have some uh, um, genes that are uh, uh, responsible to metabolize fat uh, um, uh, that are turned off, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, in this case, this can explain at epigenetic uh, level why you are not going to respond well to uh, a low carbohydrate high diet at least at the beginning and we know that in uh, the epigenetic uh, world there is a phenomenon who, um, uh, known also as uh, um, like epigenetic, uh, I would say there is not really a formal term for that, but we say, uh, used to say that some epigenetic marks um, are uh, 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 tend to be more permanent, or there is a resistance to change to be. Re- diversity that this resistance can be can explain um, uh, for example why some people can struggle at the, at the beginning to lose weight it may take more time than other people probably because the, 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 there is this, uh, some resistance at this epigenetic level um, uh, to, to the change to some some yeah so that's why uh, Coming back to your question, I think uh, we need uh, yes, genotypic, but uh, it would be useful also to identify some epigenetic markers of uh, of high and low responders to to the diet. To integrate these markers with the genetic markers,
0: you know, Lucia, I'm so glad that uh, you talk about that because so many practitioners, it seems, have been. Hanging their hat on just a variety of snips like whether it's one snip or two snips or even a handful of snips and What you're speaking to is the whole idea that we can have an epigenetic override and uh, Like let's just take one example. It's a hot topic these days. It's it's on methylation and so many people are really concerned about whether they're homozygous or heterozygous for the mthfr C six yeah. seven seven T SNP, right? So then, yeah. then they st- when they find out the result, they kind of go overboard and say, okay, I need to take all of these B vitamins. Um, I need to, you know, and really, if you look at methylation SNPs, there's uh, there are a lot of them. And so then the question yeah. is, I mean, what you said uh, really rings true that the predictive power of SNPs in and of themselves is quite small because you have to measure that against the the larger context. And so I'm kind of wondering for a practical standpoint for maybe practitioners or people listening in, you know, what might be some very good lab biomarkers to be monitoring? I mean, do we wanna be looking at homocysteine as a marker of methylation? Are there certain things that you think within the genomics realm and the epigenetics realm that, or is it just to you know, just to be looking at a variety of biomarkers depending on that person's health needs? But how do we make the translation into labs, and then not go too far fetched? If you understand what I mean, like not to over extrapolate and over translate.
1: Yes, I think this is a danger. So I do teach a class, um, uh, a Stanford and. The, the question on NTHFR uh, 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 comes over and over, and this is just an example. So <laughs> oh, you're a, used to this one. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Ah, yes, yes, yes. But this is just an example. I think it's a good example, but there are many of these. So, uh, what I used to um, answer is that, uh, you know, uh, we. Uh, we uh, genes uh, work in network in networks and actually each trait even the response to folate um, uh, to which uh, the NTHFR gene contributes uh, is actually a polygenic trait right mm-hmm. but uh, according to um, a more recent model of uh, um, complex traits actually complex traits are omnigenic which means that they are affected by Multiple sleep spanning the entire genome and interacting with each other. So, for example, measuring also the MTHR uh, MTHFR SNPs actually doesn't really tell you anything about your um, folate status or methylation level because there are, there are hundreds of other genes that perhaps can affect the can affect. Uh, can contribute to um, a higher methylation level or a lower. So it's a, it's a tug of war between different um, snips contributing to a lower and higher methylation status. So uh, focusing on one SNP is, um, yeah, I think it's, it's a narrow-minded approach and can even lead to prescribed uh, uh, some, somebody um, uh, supplements or drugs that they don't need. So um, I do agree that a, a more functional marker, uh, in, in any case, in this case, homocysteine can be a good one. Um, uh, but in general, in other cases, I think um, we need other markers. Now, for now, the biochemical markers are, I think, we are good options, uh, I hope that we will soon have other markers to, yes. to traffic in the epigenetics or yeah, genetics. But as for now, yes, uh, in this case, homocysteine, I think is a good one, is the one that I think uh, the um, American uh, um, uh, College of Nutrition recommends for a uh, folate, for a folate, process folate level.
0: Yes. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, you, you're yeah. Right. It, it just it can take us down a rabbit hole of many different things. Um, let, so let's pull it back into even greater granularity. Um, so some of the talks that you've given and that you teach on are along the lines of, you know, going back to the dietary patterns, the ketogenic diet, looking at low carb. Um, I, I'm kind of curious to get your take on uh, a very controversial topic within that sphere, which is coconut oil. You know, just this past Uh, week, there was this uh, press release that came out uh, basically stating that uh, coconut oil is a poison and, you know, I'm kind of curious because you do follow along the lines of, you know, just even personally and now more professionally, really bringing out and exalting the the benefits of uh, a higher fat diet, a lower carb regimen for people. What's your take specifically on coconut oil, if I can ask?
1: okay yes yes you can can. okay of course uh, there's no simple answer and this is very important when people want to sell you something as simple yeah then this is the problem okay you cannot say that coconut oil is gorgeous or bad in isolation i can tell you if it's good or bad depending on what diet you are following so coconut oil it can be very good in a context of a very low carbohydrate ketogenic diet. Why? Because it's full of medium uh, um, chain triglycerides, that enhance ketone production and when you do follow a very low carbohydrate diet you don't have to fear high fat because even if you, your cholesterol is going to increase but Many studies, and many studies, show that in the context of a low carb diet, the cholesterol you produce is more of the large, fluffy particles that are actually not heterogenic, okay? So in this context, go with coconut oil. If you are having like a higher carbohydrate diet, you should actually minimize fat content in general, and especially saturated fat, being this from butter or coconut oil. That's why, although I do believe that a high fat, low carbohydrate diet can be a very helpful option for people, I never and will never say fat is good for you, because this is not true. It depends what diet are you following. Fat is not always good for you. That's why you have problems where you say, butter is back. What does it mean? If you eat butter and a lot of sugar, sorry, just, you cannot do that. Or, you know, it's this is the problem. And then, you know, there are people that want to uh, make money on superfoods. And unfortunately, coconut uh, was one of these. And there is uh, yeah this these these approaches are going to fail because it's, it's, it's not true there's nothing in isolation uh, nutrients work together, and macronutrients especially so there is a good reason why we see that either very low fat low carbohydrate or uh, so no no so sorry low fat <laughs> high carbohydrates or Low carbohydrate, high fat, they both work and they're both healthy because carbohydrate and, and 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 fat are com, uh, conflicting fuels. They are biochemically conflicting fuels. And if you eat both high carbon, high fat, sorry, I think this is not the best option. And uh, so there's no really, I'm not an advocate of one diet. I think I know many people are very, very healthy. And they are on a uh, on a low fat, high carbohydrate diet, but the carbohydrate comes from vegetables, fruits, and it's a very healthy diet. As far as you have a lot of carbohydrates from vegetables, fruits, and fiber, I'm fine with that. You will live hundred years, and it's no uh, so it's, there's no problem. I just what I think is very important is to focus on quality first, and then perhaps better understand how different macronutrient compositions can trigger different biochemical effects, for example, in the lipids. So it is still true that if you lower your carbohydrate, even fruits, you will lower your triglycerides. And this might be beneficial for some people so use this actually as a, a, a nutrigenomic application to see, okay, you eat low carb for people that need to to lower triglycerides for a specific condition, okay? Or if you don't need that, and you, you need to lower LDL, okay, then do a low-fat diet, because a low-carb diet does increase your LDL. And usually it's the good one, but if for some reason you, you, you don't want that, then, you know, it's fascinating how macro decomposition can help you achieve precise learning goal, and we can use that. But there's no diet is perfect for everyone. I, you know, I personally follow some people that need a ketogenic diet because they cannot use glucose properly. So a ketogenic diet can be life-saving mm. for people that cannot use glucose properly. I followed a, a, a wonderful young lady. Um, she's um, She has um, a genetic disease, a glycogen storage disease, um, uh, known as McCartle disease of Glycogenosis type 5 um, The traditional therapy for this uh, disease, so she cannot use uh, glucose in her muscle cells. And the traditional therapy for th- this disease is to eat um, uh, carbohydrates, um, little, um, little amounts but continuously so that you always have energy because there is this dogma that without carbohydrates you cannot have energy, right? Mm. And she was following this diet for one year. She ended up on a wheelchair and she um, had a di- diaphragm muscle couldn could almost not move anymore. She couldn't breathe because uh, of these muscles that were becoming swollen. So uh, the mother, a very brave woman, Decided to just try something else, and the crazy diet, like the ketogenic one. And after some struggle, because uh, the the first few days were horrible for the for the for for this young lady. And then uh, after one week, she just stood up from the wheelchair, and she told, "I'm I'm 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 I'm, I'm fine." And now she's a very beautiful lady we are in contact, she's going to school, traveling to Japan, and so it's the difference between having a life and not having it. And mm-hmm. I'm telling you, so that's why this is what I really find interesting, it's not like the battle of the diet, so is, is this better or not, the application, diet that, that food is medicine, right? Food is can be medicine because different diet with different microorganism composition and different biochemical effects. So a ketogenic diet is perfect for people that have problems with glucose metabolism, including diabetic patients. Type 2 diabetic patients for sure and many, many reports indicate also for type 1 with supervision because they also need insulin, so it's more complicated. But mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a great tool in the box. Yeah. It's for everyone? No. Yeah. It's not for everyone. It's, uh, the, uh, compliance is very hard. And, uh, and I don't think everyone should be on a ketogenic diet.
0: Yeah. No, it, what you're saying makes absolute sense. And um, I'm right there with you with your position. You know, I'm kind of curious because um, we've been talking a lot about macronutrients. And one of the things that I have... Really tried to zoom out of and zoom into is, you know, what are some unifying principles within nutrition? Like, what are just, like, you mentioned quality. And I think that um, sometimes we get onto that pendulum or the seesaw of back and forth, looking at low and high, low and high amounts of macronutrients. And I think that there's so much more to food, especially phytonutrients. You know, phytonutrients are very un. I think, undervalued, underrecognized, and it's something that it's so small in comparison to the macronutrients, yet has really incredible healing effects at the level of cells and cell signaling, and you mentioned uh, even about vegetables, and so I'm kind of curious, because when I look at the scientific literature, one of the things that you and I could never really arm-wrestle when it comes to nutrition is the preponderance of data on fruits and vegetables and how beneficial this is for reducing the risk of chronic disease. So I'm kind of curious to get your take on phytonutrients, you know, uh, drilling away from the larger macronutrients and into the the fine pigments and non-caloric constituents of food. Uh, I, I don't, i'd be curious to hear your position and and whether or not this is something you also think is uh important from a scientific and clinical standpoint
1: oh yes absolutely i'm happy that actually this is as you mentioned this is an established uh, truth i mean we are discovering more and more about it we are discovering more and more about the details um, uh, by which these phytonutrients act at the molecular levels, but we know and we acknowledge that they are very important for our health. I think uh, one of the reasons, uh, um, so a plant, so eating a lot of vegetables, um, uh, it's uh, it's good for you for yeah, the fibers, but most of all for the phytonutrients, and we know that many of these now we are learning that also act uh, with an epigenetic mechanism. So I can I can comment on that. And there uh, is only uh, a, a growing body of research that many of these nutrients uh, work by changing gene expressions. And some of these nutrients are really essential for uh, actually making the building blocks of our epigenetic switches, so the methyl, uh, Uh, groups, and these are known as methyl donating nutrients. And other nutrients uh, are also acting by regulating directly the activity of enzymes that write, erase, or read epigenetic modifications. Um, And these are sometimes called as nutrigenomic modulators or the epibioactives and uh anyway we are this is just uh, you know uh, understanding more and more what happens behind the scenes of of uh, of how phytonutrient works and uh help us thrive um uh, and uh, that's why i think a variety and colors in our food are important because these are um uh, yeah a visual way i think that our our, our eyes and our uh, tongues are trained uh, um, uh, evolutionarily to recognize, uh, you know, the importance to incorporate variety in our diet as a means to incorporate, uh, uh, yeah, variety of phytonutrients, uh, yes, in our in our food.
0: Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, um, what well, you spoke to the epigenetic modification through these phytonutrients, yeah, the, I love it how the science on it is, is growing. I think it's, um, it's exciting to witness this in light of all of these different technologies and the omics revolution. So this has been wonderful. You know, lots of, uh, I can just tell that um, your approach to epigenetics and nutrigenomics is very deep. You know, you come from this reservoir of uh, this vast knowledge, and your study has really uh, focused and drilled into these areas for years, and so I'm excited to um, see what you're going to be doing in the in the future. Um, you know, I, I I have a specific question for you. I don't always ask my guests when they, uh, as we close the interview, this question, but for you especially, I think it's an important question uh, as a researcher and also uh, with a personal interest in this whole field. Where where do you see nutrigenomics and epigenetics in 10 years? You know, where do you see yourself with these respective fields in 10 years? You know, everything is moving so quickly. And I'm just curious, you know, are we all walking around with devices that are tracking our methylation patterns or through light on our smartphone? Or are we assessing phosphorylation in order to look at protein kinase modulation? And is that done through some kind of uh, wireless technology. You know, I, I'm just kind of curious about, you know, into the future with these topics because we're heading into the future every moment with them, it seems, and things are moving so quickly. And so, would you mind sharing if you have any um, specific yeah, visionary maybe. ideas?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can share with you more some, yeah, science, science fiction ideas, but I think it's based on the reality. I mean, I can tell you, I I can speak about my field. In general, the epigenetic um, uh, innovations are growing, not only in the field of nutrition, of course, but I I think especially in oncology. Uh, Actually, the uh, epigenetic markers that so far really are are already used in the clinic um, are used for uh, uh, prediction of cancer risk. And uh, I think uh, recently was published um, uh, a panel of epigenetic markers to uh, predict um, uh, cancer risk a risk in a liquid biopsies. So I think for sure one of probably the the most the the greatest the biggest field of application for epigenetics would be um, oncology, mm-hmm. uh, but. Um, in my field, for, I, I hope that we will also be able to identify epigenetic markers of response to food, because um, epigenetic markers can store this information on our eating history. So, uh, not only for the prediction prediction of a predisposition to lose weight on one diet or another, but also I hope a marker that can actually monitor your progress so that you are encouraged to keep up with that. For example, you know, you may start with an epigenetic markers uh, um, for a, a certain disease or uh, or a, a nutrient deficiency that you measure a baseline, and then you see the changes, and then you are motivated. I see this over and over with my students in my classroom. They ask me, oh, I would be great They uh, to, they, 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 they um, have to, uh, complete a project, a final project as part of the course, where they describe um, like an epi project, is called. So they have a challenge, they, they they do like life-changing experience. And they will so much like to have an epigenetic marker to track with their project, right? To say, okay, this changed. And I, I always tell them one day you will be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, yeah, it's something that uh, maybe is not so much is not so useful for disease detection, but is for health optimization of health. Because we are now moving, I think, from an illness medicine to a new model, which is a, a health optimization medicine, and we then need not only disease markers but also also health markers. Yeah. And I hope that genetic will help with that, yeah. with that piece.
0: You know, bingo, That that is such a key, um, <laughs> key field is how do we establish <laughs> metrics of health rather than just disease? And does the absence of disease mean that you're healthy? And I don't think so. You know, there's a whole other level on that spectrum of resilience and vitality. And so, um, gosh, I feel like we are... Um, we're science sisters in some ways because we are definitely very similar in our views on all of these, these topics. So it's been great to talk with you. This is um, a wonderful, um, gosh, you know, uh, a really nice overview of so many of the things that you've been doing and researching. I have great respect for the work that you're bringing to the world and um, your passion for education, which I can hear it in your voice and I'm sure your students appreciate it as well. So thank you so yes, much. Yes, they do.
1: Thank you very much <laughs> for having me. was, uh, yeah, it was great. I'm always happy to talk about, yes, science, health, and epigenetics.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much again for being on the podcast.